Vimes glanced at the three shields. Haven't I seen that one before, he said. <gasps> ah, Mr. Arthur Carey, the candlemaker, said Dragon. Suddenly business is booming and he feels he must be a gentleman. A shield bisected by a bend sinister d'une mèche en métal gris. That is to say, a steel grey shield indicating his personal determination and zeal. How zealous <laughs> these businessmen are. Bisected by a wick. Upper half, a chandelle in a fenêtre avec rideau houlon. A candle lighting a window with a warm glow. <laughs> Lower half, two chandeliers illuminés. "'indicating the wretched man sells candles to rich and poor alike. "'Fortunately, his father was a harbour-master, "'which fact allows us to stretch ourselves a little "'with the crest of a lamp au poisson, fish-shaped lamp, "'indicating both this and his son's current profession. "'The motto I left in the common modern tongue and is... Art brought forth the candle. I'm sorry, it was naughty, but I couldn't resist it. My sides ache, said Vimes. Something kicked his brain, trying to get attention. This one is for Mr. Gerhardt Sock, president of the Butcher's Guild, said Dragon. His wife's told him a coat of arms is the thing to have, and who are we to argue with the daughter of a tripe merchant? So we've made him a shield of red for blood and blue and white stripes for a butcher's apron, bisected by a string of sausages, centralis, a cleaver held in a gloved hand, a boxing glove, which is uh, <laughs> the best we could do for sock. Motto is Futuris meus est in visceris, which translates as My future is in the entrails, both relating to his profession and uh, alluding to the old practice of telling. The future from entrails, said Vimes. Amazing. Whatever was trying to get into his attention was really jumping up and down now. While this one is for Rudolf Potts of the Baker's Guild, said Dragon, pointing to the third shield with a twig-thin finger. Can you read it, Commander? Vimes gave it a gloomy stare. Well, it's divided into three, and there's a rose, a flame, and a pot, he said. Uh, bakers use fire, and the pot's for water, I suppose. And a pun on the name, said Dragon. But unless he's called Rosie, ah, uh... Then Vimes blinked. A rose is a flower. Oh, good grief. Flower, 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 fire, and water. The pot looks like a gazunder to me, though, a chamber pot. The old word for baker was pistor, said Dragon. Why, Commander, we shall make a herald of you yet. <sighs> and the motto? Quod subigo farinam, said Vimes, and wrinkled his forehead. Because 
Farinaceous means to do with corn or flour, doesn't it? Oh, no. Because I need the dough. Dragon clapped his hands. Well done, sir. This place must simply rock on those long winter evenings, said Vimes. And that's heraldry, is it? Crossword clues and plays on words. Of course, there is a great deal more, said the dragon. These are simple. We more or less have to make them up. Whereas the escutcheon of an old family, such as the Nobses. Nobs? said Vimes as the penny dropped. That's it. You said Nobs. Before, when you were talking about old families. Ah, what? Oh, indeed, yes. Oh, yes, a fine old family, although now, sadly, in decay. You don't mean knobs, as in corporal knobs, said Vimes, horror edging his words. A book thumped open. In the orange light, Vimes had a vague upside-down glimpse of shields and a rambling, unpruned family tree. My word, would that be a C.W. St. J. Nobs? Er, uh, yes, yes. Son of Sconanobs and a lady referred to here as Maisie of Elm Street? Probably. Grandson of Sloop Nobs? That sounds about right. Who was the illegitimate son of Edward St. John de Nobis, Earl of Ankh, and uh, a parlour-maid of unknown lineage? Good gods. The Earl died without issue, except that which uh, <laughs> resulted in slope. We had not been able to trace the scion hitherto, at any rate. Good gods. You know the gentleman? Vimes regarded with amazement a serious and positive sentence about Corporal Nobbs that included the word gentleman. Ah, uh, yes, he said. Is he a man of property? Only other people's. Well, uh, do tell him there is no land or money now, of course, but the title is still extant. Sorry, uh, let me make sure I understand this. Corporal Nobbs, my Corporal Nobbs, is the Earl of Ankh? He would have to satisfy us as to proof of his lineage, but yes, it would appear so. Vimes stared into the gloom. Thus far in his life, Corporal Nobbs would have been unlikely to satisfy the examiners as to his species. Good gods, Vimes said yet again, and I suppose he gets a coat of arms. A particularly fine one. <sighs> oh. Vimes hadn't even wanted a coat of arms. An hour ago, he'd have cheerfully avoided this appointment, as he had done so many times before. But... Nobby, he said. Good gods. Well, well, this has been a very happy meeting, said Dragon. I do so like to keep the records up to date. <sighs> Incidentally, how is young Captain Carrot getting along? I'm told his young lady is a werewolf. <sighs> really, said Vimes. Ah. <sighs> In the dark, Dragon made a movement that might have been a conspiratorial tap on the side of the nose. 
We know these things. Captain Carrot is doing well, said Vimes, as icily as he could manage. Captain Carrot always does well. He slammed the door when he went out. The candle flames wavered. Constable Angua walked out of an alleyway, doing up her belt. "'That went very well, I thought,' said Carrot, "'and will go some way to earning us the respect of the community.' "'Pooh! That man's sleeve! "'I doubt if he even knows the meaning of the word laundry,' said Angua, wiping her mouth. "'Automatically they fell into step. "'The energy-saving policeman's walk, "'where the pendulum weight of the leg is used to propel the walker along "'with the minimum of effort.' Walking was important, Vimes had always said, and because Vimes had said it, Carrot believed it. Walking and talking. Walk far enough and talk to enough people, and sooner or later you had an answer. The respect of the community, thought Angua. That was a Carrot phrase. Well, in fact, it was a Vimes phrase, although Sir Samuel usually spat after he said it. But Carrot believed it. It was Carrot who'd suggested to the patrician that hardened criminals should be given the chance to serve the community by redecorating the homes of the elderly, lending a new terror to old age, and given Ark Morpork's crime rate, leading to at least one old lady having her front room wallpapered so many times in six months that now she could only get into it sideways. Commander Vimes, on the other hand, was all for giving criminals a short, sharp shock. It really depended on how tightly they could be tied to the lightning rod. "'I found something very interesting that you will be very interested to see,' said Carrot after a while. "'That's interesting,' said Angua. "'But I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I want it to be a surprise,' said Carrot. "'Oh, good.' Angua walked in thought for a while and then said, "'I wonder if it will be as surprising as the collection of rock samples you showed me last week.' "'Oh, that was good, wasn't it?' said Carrot enthusiastically. "'I've been along that street dozens of times "'and never suspected there was a mineral museum there. "'All those silicates!' "'Amazing! "'You'd imagine people would be flocking to it, wouldn't you?' "'Yes! "'I can't think why they don't!' "'Angua reminded herself that Carrot appeared to have in his soul "'not even a trace element of irony. "'She told herself that it wasn't his fault "'he'd been brought up by dwarfs in some mine "'and really did think that bits of rock were interesting. "'The week before they'd visited an iron foundry. "'That had been interesting, too. "'And yet... and yet you couldn't help liking Carrot. "'Even people he was arresting liked Carrot. "'Even old ladies living in a permanent smell of fresh paint liked Carrot. "'She liked Carrot a lot.' which was going to make leaving him all the harder. She was a werewolf. That's all there was to it. You either spent your time trying to make sure people didn't find out, or you let them find out and spent your time watching them keep their distance and whisper behind your back. Although, of course, you'd have to turn round to watch that. Carrot didn't mind, but he minded that other people minded. He minded that even quite friendly colleagues tended to carry a bit of silver somewhere on their person. She could see it upsetting him. She could see the tensions building up, and he didn't know how to deal with them. It was just as her father had said, get involved with humans other than at mealtimes, and you might as well jump down a silver mine. Apparently, there's going to be a huge firework display after the celebrations next year, said Carrot. I like fireworks. It beats me why Aunt Moorpork wants to celebrate the fact that it had a civil war three hundred years ago, said Angua, coming back to the here and now. Why not? 
We won, said Carrot. Yes, but you lost too. Always look on the positive side, that's what I say. Ah, here we are. Angua looked up at the sign. She'd learned to read dwarf runes now. Dwarf Bread Museum, she said. Gosh, I can't wait. Carrot nodded happily and pushed open the door. There was a smell of ancient crusts. Cooey, Mr Hopkinson, he called. There was no reply. He does go out sometimes, he said. Probably when the excitement gets too much for him, said Angua. Hopkinson? That's not a dwarf name, is it? Oh, he's human, said Carrot, stepping inside, but an amazing authority. Bread is his life. He wrote the definitive work on offensive baking. Well, since he's not here, I'll just take two tickets and leave tuppence on the desk. It didn't look as though Mr Hopkinson got many visitors. There was dust on the floor and dust on the display cases and a lot of dust on the exhibits. Most of them were the classic cowpat-like shape, an echo of their taste but there were also buns, close combat crumpets, deadly throwing toast, and a huge dusty array of other shapes devised by a race that went in for food fighting in a big and above all terminal way. What are we looking for? Angua said. She sniffed. There was a nastily familiar tang in the air. It's, are you ready for this? It's the battlebred of Brian Bloodaxe, said Carrot, rummaging in a desk by the entrance. A loaf of bread? You brought me here to see a loaf of bread? She sniffed again. Yes. Blood. Fresh blood. That's right, said Carrot. It's only going to be here a couple of weeks on loan. It's the actual bread he personally wielded at the Battle of Coombe Valley, killing fifty-seven trolls, although... And here Carrot's tone changed down from enthusiasm to civic respectability... That was a long time ago, and we shouldn't let ancient history blind us to the realities of a multi-ethnic society in the century of the fruit bat. There was a creak of a door. Then, this battlebred, said Angua indistinctly, black, isn't it? Quite a lot bigger than normal bread? Yes, that's right, said Carrot. And Mr Hopkinson, short man, little white pointy beard, that's him. And his head, all... "'Smashed in?' "'What? I think you'd better come and look,' said Angua, backing away. "'Dragon King of Arms sat alone among his candles. "'So that was Commander Sir Samuel Vimes,' he mused. "'Stupid man! Clearly can't see beyond the chip on his shoulder, "'and people like that rise to high office these days. <sighs> "'Still such people have their uses, which presumably is why Vetinari has elevated him. Stupid men are often capable of things the clever would not dare to contemplate. He sighed and pulled another tome towards him. It was not much bigger than many others which lined his study, a fact which might have surprised anyone who knew its contents. He was rather proud of it. It was quite an unusual piece of work, but he had been surprised, or would have been surprised, had Dragon been really surprised at anything at all for the last hundred years or so, at how easy some of it had been. He didn't even need to read it now, he knew it by heart. The family trees were properly planted, the words were down there on the page, and all he had to do was sing along. The first page was headed, The Descent of King Carrot I, by the grace of the gods King of Ankh-Morpork. A long and complex family tree occupied the next dozen pages until it reached 
married. The words there were merely pencilled in. Delphine Angua von Überwald, read the dragon aloud, father and... Ah, sire, Baron Guy von Überwald, also known as Silvertail, mother, Madame Seraphine Sox-Blunberg, also known as Yellowfang of Genua. It had been quite an achievement, that part. He had expected his agents to have some difficulty with the more lupine areas of Angua's ancestry, but it turned out that mountain wolves took quite a lot of interest in that sort of thing as well. Angua's ancestors had definitely been among the leaders of the pack. Dragon King of Arms grinned. As far as he was concerned, species was a secondary consideration. What really mattered in an individual was a good pedigree. Ah, well, that was the future as it might have been. He pushed the book aside. One of the advantages of a life much longer than average was that you saw how fragile the future was. Men said things like, peace in our time, or an empire that will last a thousand years, and less than half a lifetime later no one even remembered who they were, let alone what they had said, or where the mob had buried their ashes. What changed history were smaller things. Often a few strokes of the pen would do the trick. He pulled another tome towards him. The frontispiece bore the words, The Descent of King... Now, what would the man call himself? Uh, that at least was not calculable. Oh, well. Dragon picked up his pencil and wrote, Nobs. He smiled in the candlelit room. People kept on talking about the true king of Ankh-Morpork, but history taught a cruel lesson. It said, often in words of blood, that the true king was the one who got crowned. Books filled this room, too. That was the first impression, one of dank, oppressive bookishness. The late Father Tubelcheck was sprawled across a drift of fallen books. He was certainly dead. No one could have bled that much and still been alive, or survived for long with a head like a deflated football. Someone must have hit him with a lump hammer. "'This old lady came running out, screaming,' said Constable Visit, saluting. "'So I went in, and it was just like this, sir.' Just like this, Constable Visit? Yes, sir, and the name's Visit the Infidel with Explanatory Pamphlets, sir. Who was the old lady? She says she's Mrs Kanaki, sir. She says she always brings him his meals. She says she does for him. Does for him? You know, sir, cleaning and sweeping. There was indeed a tray on the floor, along with a broken bowl and some spilled porridge. The lady who did for the old man had been shocked to find that someone else had done for him first. Did she touch him, he said. She says not, sir. Which meant the old priest had somehow achieved the neatest death Vimes had ever seen. His hands were crossed on his chest. His eyes had been closed. And something had been put in his mouth. It looked like a rolled-up piece of paper. It gave the corpse a disconcertingly jaunty look, as though he'd decided to have a last cigarette after dying. Vimes gingerly picked out the little scroll and unrolled it. It was covered with meticulously written but unfamiliar symbols. What made them particularly noteworthy was the fact that their author had apparently made use of the only liquid lying around in huge quantities. Yuck, said Vimes. Written in blood. Does this mean anything to anyone? Yes, sir. Vimes rolled his eyes. Yes, Constable Visit. Visit the infidel with explanatory pamphlets, sir, said Constable Visit, looking hurt. 
thee infidel with explanatory pamphlets. Constable Visit was an omnian, whose country's traditional approach to evangelism was to put unbelievers to torture and the sword. Things had become a lot more civilised these days, but omnians still had a strenuous and indefatigable approach to spreading the word, and had merely changed the nature of the weapons. Constable Visit spent his days off in company with his co-religious smite the unbeliever with cunning arguments, ringing doorbells and causing people to hide behind the furniture everywhere in the city. "'I was just about to say it, Constable,' said Vimes. "'Well?' "'It's an ancient Clatchian script,' said Constable Visit. "'One of the desert tribes called it the Cenotines, sir. "'They had a sophisticated but fundamentally flawed—' "'Yes, yes, yes,' said Vimes, "'who could recognise the verbal foot "'getting ready to stick itself in the oral door. "'But do you know what it means?' "'I could find out, sir. "'Good.' "'Incidentally, were you able by any chance to find time "'to have a look at those leaflets I gave you the other day, sir?' Uh, "'Been very busy,' said Vimes automatically. "'Not to worry, sir,' said Visit, and smiled the one smile of those doing good against great odds. "'When you've got a moment, we'll be fine.' The old books that had been knocked from the shelves had spilled their pages everywhere. There were splashes of blood on many of them. "'Some of these look religious,' Vimes said. "'You might find something.' He turned. Detritus, have a look round, will you? Detritus paused in the act of laboriously drawing a chalk line around the body. Yes, sir. What for, sir? Anything you find. Right, sir. With a grunt, Vimes hunkered down and prodded at a grey smear on the floor. Dirt, he said. You get dat on floor, sir, said Detritus, helpfully. Except this is off-white. We're on black loam, said Vimes. "'Ah,' said Sergeant Detritus, "'a clue. "'Could just be dirt, of course.' "'There was something else. "'Someone had made an attempt to tidy up the books. "'They'd stacked several dozen of them in one neat towering pile, "'one book wide, largest books on the bottom, "'all the edges squared up with geometrical precision. "'Now that I don't understand,' said Vimes. "'There's a fight. "'The old man is viciously attacked.' Then someone, maybe it was him, dying, maybe it was the murderer, writes something down using the poor man's own blood and rolls it up neatly and pops it into his mouth like a sweetie. Then he does die and someone shuts his eyes and makes him tidy and pile these books up neatly and does what? Walks out into the seething hurly-burly that is Ark Morpork? Sergeant Detritus's honest brow furrowed with the effort of thought. Could be, er... Uh... "'Could be there's a footprint outside the window,' he said. "'That's always a clue worth looking for.' Vimes sighed. Detritus, despite a room-temperature IQ, made a good copper and a damn good sergeant. He had that special type of stupidity that was hard to fool. But the only thing more difficult than getting him to grasp an idea was getting him to let go of it. Detritus was particularly good when it came to asking questions. He had three basic ones— they were the direct, did you do it, the persistent, are you sure it wasn't you what done it, and the subtle, it was you what done it, wasn't it. Although they were not the most cunning questions ever devised, Detritus's talent was to go on patiently asking them for hours on end until he got the right answer, which was generally something like, yes, yes, I did it, I did it, now please tell me what it was I did. Detritus, he said as kindly as possible, 
There's a 30-foot drop into the river outside the window. There won't be... He paused. This was the River Ark, after all. Any footprints would be bound to have oozed back by now, he corrected himself, almost certainly. He looked outside, though, just in case. The river gurgled and sucked below him. There were no footprints, even on its famously crusted surface. There was another smear of dirt on the windowsill. Vimes scratched some up and sniffed at it. Looks like some more white clay, he said. He couldn't think of any white clay around the city. Once you got outside the walls, it was thick black loam all the way to the ram tops. A man walking across it would be two inches taller by the time he got to the other side of a field. White clay, he said. Where the hell is white clay country round here? It's a mystery, said Detritus. Vimes grinned mirthlessly. It was a mystery, and he didn't like mysteries. Mysteries had a way of getting bigger if you didn't solve them quickly. Mysteries pupped. Mere murders happened all the time, and usually even detritus could solve them. When a distraught woman was standing over a fallen husband holding a right-angled poker and crying, he never should have said that about our Neville, there was only a limited amount you could do to spin out the case beyond the next coffee break. And when various men or parts thereof were hanging from or nailed to various fixtures in the mended drum on a Saturday night, and the other clientele were all looking innocent... You didn't even need a detritic intelligence to work out what had been happening. He looked down at the late Father Tubelcheck. It was amazing he'd bled so much, with his pipe-cleaner arms and toast-racked chest. He certainly wouldn't have been able to put up much of a fight. Vimes leaned down and gently raised one of the corpse's eyelids. A milky blue eye with a black centre looked back at him from wherever the old priest was now. A religious old man who lived in a couple of little pokey rooms, and obviously didn't go out much from the smell. What kind of threat could he... Constable Visit poked his head around the door. There's a dwarf down here with no eyebrows and a frizzled beard. Says you told him to come, sir, he said. And some citizens say Father Tubalcheck is their priest, and they want to bury him decently. Ah, uh, that'll be little bottom. Send him up, said Vimes, straightening. Tell the others they'll have to wait. Littlebottom climbed the stairs, took in the scene, and managed to reach the window in time to be sick. "'Better now?' said Vimes eventually. Uh, "'Yes, uh, I hope so.' "'I'll leave you to it, then.' Uh, "'What exactly did you want me to do?' said Littlebottom, but Vimes was already halfway down the stairs. Angua growled. It was the signal to Carrot that he could open his eyes again. Women, as Colon had remarked to Carrot once when he thought the lad needed advice, could be funny about little things. Maybe they didn't like to be seen without their makeup on or insisted on buying smaller suitcases than men, even though they always took more clothes. In Angua's case, she didn't like to be seen en route from human to werewolf shape or vice versa. It was just something she had a thing about, she said. Carrot could see her in either shape, but not in the various ones she occupied on the way through in case he never wanted to see her again. Through werewolf eyes, the world was different. For one thing, it was in black and white. At least, that small part of it which as a human she thought of as vision was monochrome. But who cared that vision had to take a back seat when smell drove instead, laughing and sticking its arm out of the window and making rude gestures at all the other senses? Afterwards, she always remembered the odours as colours and sounds. Blood was rich brown and deep base. 
Stale bread was a surprisingly tinkly bright blue, and every human being was a four-dimensional kaleidoscopic symphony. For nasal vision meant seeing through time as well as space. A man could stand still for a minute, and an hour later there'd still be to the nose his odours, barely faded. She prowled the aisles of the dwarf bread museum, muzzled to the ground. Then she went out into the alley for a while and tried there too. After five minutes she padded back to Carrot and gave him the signal again. When he reopened his eyes, she was pulling her shirt on over her head. That was one thing where humans had the edge. You couldn't beat a pair of hands. I thought you'd be down the street and following someone, he said. Follow who? said Angua. Pardon? I can smell him, and you, and the bread, and that's it. Nothing else. Dirt, dust, the usual stuff. Oh, there are some old traces, days old. I know you were in here last week, for example. There are lots of smells. Grease, meat, pine resin, for some reason. Old food. But I'll swear no living thing's been in here in the last day or so but him and us. But you told me everyone leaves a trail. They do. Carrot looked down at the late curator. However you phrased it, however broadly you applied your definitions, he definitely couldn't have committed suicide, not with a loaf of bread. Vampires? said Carrot. They can fly. Angua sighed. Carrot, I could tell if a vampire had been in here in the last month. Well, there's almost half a dollar in pennies in the drawer, said Carrot. Anyway, a thief would be here for the battlebread, wouldn't they? It is a very valuable cultural artefact. "'Has the poor man got any relatives?' said Angua. "'He's got an elderly sister, I believe. "'Come in once a month just to have a chat. "'He lets me handle the exhibits, you know.' "'That must be fun,' said Angua, before she could stop herself. "'It's very... satisfying, yes,' said Carrot solemnly. "'It reminds me of home.' Angua sighed and stepped into the room behind the little museum. It was like the back rooms of museums everywhere, full of junk and things there is no room for on the shelves, and also items of doubtful provenance, such as coins dated 52 BC. There were some benches with shards of dwarf bread on them, a tidy tool rack with various sizes of kneading hammer, and papers all over the place. Against one wall, and occupying a large part of the room, was an oven. "'He researches old recipes,' said Carrot, who seemed to feel he had to promote the old man's expertise even in death. Angua opened the oven door. Warmth spilt out into the room. Hell of a bake oven, she said. What are these things? Ah, I see he's been making drop scones, said Carrot, quite deadly at short range. She shut the door. Let's go back to the yard and they can send someone out. Angua stopped. These were always the dangerous moments, just after a shape change this close to full moon. It wasn't so bad when she was a wolf. She was still as intelligent, or at least she felt as intelligent, although life was a lot simpler, and so she was probably just extremely intelligent for a wolf. It was when she became a human again that things were difficult. For a few minutes, until the morphic field fully reasserted itself, all her senses were still keen, smells were still incredibly strong, and her ears could hear sounds way outside the stunted human range. And she could think more about the things she experienced. A wolf could sniff a lamppost and know that old Bonzo had been passed yesterday and was feeling a bit under the weather and was still being fed tripe by his owner, but a human mind could actually think about the whys and wherefores. 
There is something else, she said, and breathed in gently. Faint, not a living thing, but can't you smell it? Something like dirt, but not quite. It's kind of yellow-orange. Um, said Carrot tactfully, some of us don't have your nose. I've smelled it before, somewhere in this town. I can't remember where. It's strong, stronger than the other smells. It's a muddy smell. Ha! Well, on these streets, no, no, it's not exactly mud. Sharper, more treble. You know, sometimes I envy you. It must be nice to be a wolf just for a while. It has its drawbacks. Like fleas, she thought, as they locked up the museum and the food, and the constant nagging feeling that you should be wearing three bras at once. She kept telling herself she had it under control, and she did, in a way. She prowled the city on moonlit nights, and, OK, there was the occasional chicken, but she always remembered where she'd been, and went round next day to shove some money under the door. It was hard to be a vegetarian who had to pick bits of meat out of her teeth in the morning. She was definitely on top of it, though, definitely. She reassured herself. It was Angua's mind that prowled the night, not a werewolf mind. She was almost entirely sure of that. A werewolf wouldn't stop at chickens, not by a long way. She shuddered. Who was she kidding? It was easy to be a vegetarian by day. It was preventing yourself from becoming a humanitarian at night that took the real effort. The first clocks were striking eleven as Vimes's sedan chair wobbled to a halt outside the patrician's palace. Commander Vimes's legs were beginning to give out, but he ran up five flights of stairs as fast as possible and collapsed on a chair in the waiting salon. Minutes went past. You didn't knock on the patrician's door. He summoned you in the certain knowledge that you would be there. Vimes sat back, enjoying a moment's peace. Something inside his coat went bing, bing, bingly, bing. He sighed, pulled out a leather-bound package about the size of a small book and opened it. A friendly yet slightly worried face peered up at him from its cage. Yes, said Vimes. 11am. Appointment with the patrician. Yes. Well, it's five past now. Ah, uh, so you've had it, have you? said the imp. No. Shall I go on remembering it or what? No. Anyway, you didn't remind me about the College of Arms at ten. The imp looked panic-stricken. That's Tuesday, isn't it? Could have sworn it was Tuesday. It was an hour ago. "'Oh!' the imp was downcast. "'Oh, all right, sorry. Um, "'Hey, could I tell you what time it is in Clatch, if you like? "'Or Genua? Or Hung Hung? "'Any of those places? You name it.' "'I don't need to know the time in Clatch.' "'You might,' said the imp desperately. "'Think how people would be impressed if, during a dull moment of the conversation, "'you could say, "'Incidentally, in Clatch, it's an hour ago. "'Or Best Pelagic. "'Or Ephib. Ask me. Go on, go on. I don't mind.' Any of those places? Vimes sighed inwardly. He had a notebook. He took notes in it. It was always useful. And then Sybil, God bless her, had brought him this fifteen-function imp which did so many other things, although as far as he could see at least ten of its functions consisted of apologising for its inefficiency in the other five. You could take a memo, Vimes said. Wow! Really? Gosh, OK, right, no problem! Vimes cleared his throat. 
See Corporal Dobbs re-timekeeping, also re-earldom. Er, uh, sorry, uh, is this the memo? Yes. Sorry, you should have said memo first. I'm pretty certain it's in the manual. All right, it was a memo. Um, sorry, you have to say it again. Memo. See Corporal Nobbs re-timekeeping, also re-earldom. Got it, said the imp. Would you like to be reminded of this at any particular time? The time here, said Vimes nastily, or the time in, say, Clatch. As a matter of fact, I can tell you what time it... I think I'll write in my notebook, if you don't mind, said Vimes. Oh, well, if you prefer, I can recognise handwriting, said the imp proudly. I'm quite advanced. Vimes pulled out his notebook and held it up. Like this, he said. The imp squinted for a moment. Yep, it said. That's handwriting, sure enough. Curly bits, spiky bits, all joined together. Yep, handwriting. I'd recognise it anywhere. Aren't you supposed to tell me what it says? The imp looked wary. Says, he said. It's supposed to make noises. Vimes put the battered book away and shut the lid of the organiser. Then he sat back and carried on waiting. Someone very clever, certainly someone much cleverer than whoever had trained that imp, must have made the clock for the patrician's waiting room. It went tick-tock like any other clock. But somehow, and against all usual horological practice, the tick and the tock were irregular. Tick, tock, tick, and then the merest fraction of a second longer before... Tock, tick, tock, and then a tick a fraction of a second earlier than the mind's ear was now prepared for. The effect was enough, after ten minutes, to reduce the thinking processes of even the best prepared to a sort of porridge. The patrician must have paid the clockmaker quite highly. The clock said quarter past eleven. Vimes walked over to the door and, despite precedent, knocked gently. There was no sound from within, no murmur of distant voices. He tried the handle. The door was unlocked. Lord Vetinari had always said that punctuality was the politeness of princes. Vimes went in. Cheery dutifully scraped up the crumbly white dirt and then examined the corpse of the late Father Tubalcheck. Anatomy was an important study at the Alchemists' Guild, owing to the ancient theory that the human body represented a microcosm of the universe, although when you saw one opened up it was hard to imagine which part of the universe was small and purple and went blomp-blomp when you prodded it. But in any case, you tended to pick up practical anatomy as you went along, and sometimes scraped it off the walls as well. When new students tried an experiment that was particularly successful in terms of explosive force, the result was often a cross between a major laboratory refit and a game of hunt the other kidney. The man had been killed by being repeatedly hit around the head. That was about all you could say. Some kind of very heavy, blunt instrument. It is a pervasive and beguiling myth that the people who design instruments of death end up being killed by them. There is almost no foundation, in fact. Colonel Shrapnel wasn't blown up. Monsieur Guillotine died with his head on. Colonel Gatling wasn't shot. If it hadn't been for the murder of Kosh and blackjack maker Sir William Blunt Instrument in an alleyway, the rumour would never have got started. What else did Vimes expect Cheery to do? He looked carefully at the rest of the body. There were no other obvious signs of violence, although there were a few specks of blood on the man's fingers, but then there was blood everywhere. A couple of fingernails were torn. Tubalcheck had put up a fight, or at least had tried to shield himself with his hands. 
Cheery looked more closely at the fingers. There was something piled under the nails. It had a waxy sheen like thick grease. He couldn't imagine why it should be there, but maybe his job was to find out. He conscientiously took an envelope out of his pocket and scraped the stuff into it, sealed it up and numbered it. Then he took his iconograph out of its box and prepared to take a picture of the corpse. As he did so, something caught his eye. Father Tubelcheck lay there, one eye still open as Vimes had left it, winking at eternity. Cheery looked closer. He thought he'd imagined it, but even now he wasn't sure. The mind could play tricks. He opened the little door of the iconograph and spoke to the imp inside. "'Can you paint a picture of his eye, Sidney?' he said. The imp squinted out through the lens. "'Just the eye?' it squeaked. "'Yes, as big as you can. You're sick, mister.' "'And shut up,' said Cheery. He propped the box on the table and sat back. From inside the box there came the swish-swish of brush strokes. At last there was the sound of a handle being turned and a slightly damp picture rustled out of a slot. Cheery peered at it. Then he knocked on the box. The hatch opened. Yes? Bigger. So big it fills the whole paper. In fact... Cheery squinted at the picture in his hands. Just paint the pupil, the bit in the middle. So it fills the whole paper? You're weird. Cheery propped the box nearer. There was a clicking of gears as the imp wound the lenses out and then a few more seconds of busy brushwork. Another damp picture unwound. It showed a big black disc. Well, mainly black. Cheery looked closer. There was a hint, just a hint. He rapped on the box again. Yes, Mr Dwarf Weird Person, said the imp. The bit in the middle, big as you can, thank you. The lenses wound out yet further. Cheery waited anxiously. In the next room he could hear Detritus patiently moving around. The paper wound out for the third time and the hatch opened. That's it, said the imp. I've run out of black. And the paper was black, except for the tiny little area that wasn't. The door to the stairs burst open and Constable Visit came in, borne along by the pressure of a small crowd. Cheery guiltily thrust the paper into his pocket. This is intolerable, said a small man with a long black beard. We demand you let us in. Uh, who are you, young man? I'm, che I'm, I'm, I'm Corporal Littlebottom, said Cheery. Look, I've got a badge. Well, Corporal, said the man, I am Wengel Radley, and I'm a man of some standing in this community, and I demand that you let us have poor Father Tubelcheck this minute. Well, we're uh, uh, trying to find out who killed him, Cheery began. There was a movement behind Cheery, and the faces in front of him suddenly looked very worried indeed. He turned to see Detritus in the doorway to the next room. Everything OK? said the troll. The changed fortunes of the watch had allowed Detritus to have a proper breastplate rather than a piece of elephant battle armour. As was normal practice for the uniform of a sergeant, the armourer had attempted to do a stylized representation of muscles on it. As far as Detritus was concerned, he hadn't been able to get them all in. Is there any trouble? he said. The crowd backed away. None at all, officer, said Mr Radley. You were just loomed suddenly, that's all. That's correct, said Detritus. I am a loomer. It often happens suddenly, so there's no trouble then. No trouble whatsoever, officer. Amazing thing, trouble, rumbled Detritus thoughtfully. Always I go looking for trouble, and when I find it... People say it ain't there. Mr. Radley drew himself up. But, 
We want to take Father Tuplecheck away to bury him, he said. Detritus turned to Cheery Littlebottom. You done everything you need? I suppose so. He dead? Oh, yes. He gonna get any better? Better than dead? I doubt it. OK, then, you people can take him away. The two watchmen stood aside as the body was carried down the stairs. Why are you taking pictures of the dead man? said Detritus. Well, uh, it might be helpful to see how he was lying. Detritus nodded sagely. Ah, he was lying, was he? And him a holy man, too? Littlebottom pulled out the picture and looked at it again. It was almost black, but... A constable arrived at the bottom of the stairs. Is there someone up there called... There was a muffled snigger. <laughs> Cheery Littlebottom? Yes, said Littlebottom gloomily. Well, Commander Vimes says you've got to come to the Patrician's Palace right now, all right. That's Corporal Littlebottom you're talking to, said Detritus. It's all right, said Littlebottom. Nothing could make it any worse. Rumour is information distilled so finely that it can filter through anything. It does not need doors and windows. Sometimes it doesn't even need people. It can exist free and wild, running from ear to ear, without ever touching lips. It had escaped already. From the high window of the patrician's bedroom, Sam Vimes could see people drifting towards the palace. There wasn't a mob, there wasn't even what you might call a crowd, but the Brownian motion of the streets was bouncing more and more people in his direction. He relaxed slightly when he saw one or two guards come through the gates. On the bed, Lord Vetinari opened his eyes. Ah, uh, Commander Vimes, he murmured. What's been happening, sir? said Vimes. I appear to be lying down, Vimes. You were in your office, sir, unconscious. Dear me, I must have been overdoing it. Well, thank you. If you would be kind enough to help me up. Lord Vetinari tried to pull himself upright, swayed and fell back again. His face was pale. Sweat beaded his forehead. There was a knock at the door. Vimes opened it a fraction. It's me, sir. Fred Colon. I got a message. What's up? Ah, oh, Fred. Who have you got down there so far? There's me and Constable Flint and Constable Slapper, sir. Right. Someone's to go up to my place and get Willikins to bring me my street uniform and my sword and crossbow and an overnight bag and some cigars. And tell Lady Sybil, uh, tell Lady Sybil, uh, well, they'll just have to tell Lady Sybil I've got to deal with things down here, that's all. What's happening, sir? Someone downstairs said Lord Vetinari's dead. Dead? murmured the patrician from his bed. Nonsense! He jerked himself upright, swung his legs off the bed and folded up. It was a slow, terrible collapse. Lord Vetinari was a tall man, so there was a long way to fall, and he did it by folding up a joint at a time. His ankles gave way, and he fell on his knees. His knees hit the ground with a bang, and he bent at the waist. Finally, his forehead bounced on the carpet. Oh, he said. His lordship's just a bit, um... Vimes began, then he grabbed Colon and dragged him out of the room. I reckon he's been poisoned, Fred, and that's the truth of it. Colon looked horrified. Ye gods, do you want me to get a doctor? Are you mad? We want him to live. 
Vimes bit his lip. He'd said the words that were on his mind, and now, without a doubt, the faint smoke of rumour would drift out across the city. But someone ought to look at him, he said aloud. Damn right, said Colon. You want I should get a wizard? How do we know it wasn't one of them? Ye gods! Vimes tried to think. All the doctors in the city were employed by the guilds, and all the guilds hated veterinary, so... When you've got enough people to spare a runner, send him up to the stables on King's Down to fetch Donut Jimmy, he said. Colon looked even more stricken. Donut? He doesn't know anything about doctoring. He dopes racehorses. Just get him, Fred. What if he won't come? Then say that Commander Vimes knows why Laughing Boy didn't win the Quirm Hundred Dollars last week, and say that I know Chryso praised the troll lost ten thousand on that race. Colon was impressed. You've got a nasty twist of mind there, sir. There's going to be a lot of people turning up pretty soon. I want a couple of watchmen outside this room, trolls or dwarfs for preference, and no one is to come in without my permission, right? Colon's face contorted as various emotions fought for space. Finally, he managed to say, But... poisoned? He's got food tasters and everything. Then maybe it was one of them, Fred. My God, sir, you don't trust anyone, do you? No, Fred. Incidentally, was it you? Just kidding, Vimes added quickly, as Colon's face threatened to burst into tears. Off you go, we don't have much time. Vimes shut the door and leaned on it. Then he turned the key in the lock and moved a chair under the handle. Finally, he hauled the patrician off the floor and rolled him onto the bed. There was a grunt from the man, and his eyelids flickered. Poison, thought Vimes. That's the worst of all. It doesn't make a noise. The poisoner can be miles away. You can't see it. Often you can't really smell it or taste it. It could be anywhere. And there it is, doing its work. The patrician opened his eyes. I would like a glass of water, he said. There was a jug and glass by the bed. Vimes picked up the jug and hesitated. I'll send someone to get some, he said. Lord Vetinari blinked very slowly. Ah, Sir Samuel, he said. But whom can you trust? There was a crowd in the big audience chamber when Vimes finally went downstairs. They were milling about, worried and unsure, and like important men everywhere, when they were worried and unsure, they got angry. The first to bustle up to Vimes was Mr Boggis of the Guild of Thieves. "'Yeah, what's going on, Vimes?' he demanded. He met Vimes's stare. "'Sir Samuel, I mean,' he said, losing a certain amount of bustle. "'I believe Lord Vetinari has been poisoned,' said Vimes. The background muttering stopped. Boggis realised that, since he had been the one to ask the question, he was now the man on the spot. Uh, "'Fatally?' he said. In the silence, a pin would have clanged. "'Not yet,' said Vimes. Around the hall there was a turning of heads. The focus of the universal attention was Dr Downey, head of the Guild of Assassins. Downey nodded. "'I'm not aware of any arrangement with regard to Lord Vetinari,' he said. "'Besides, as I am sure is common knowledge, we have set the price for the patrician at one million dollars.' "'And who has that sort of money indeed?' said Vimes. "'Well, you, for one, Sir Samuel,' said Downey. There was some nervous laughter. "'We uh, wish to see Lord Vetinari in any case,' said Boggis. "'No.' "'No? And why not, pray?' 
Doctor's orders. Really? <laughs> Which doctor? Behind Vimes, Sergeant Colan shut his eyes. Dr. James Folsom, said Vimes. It took a few seconds before someone worked this out. What? You can't mean... Donut Jimmy? He's a horse doctor! So I understand, said Vimes. But why? Because many of his patients survive, said Vimes. He raised his hands as the protests grew. And now, gentlemen, I must leave you. Somewhere there's a poisoner. I'd like to find him before he becomes a murderer. He went back up the stairs, trying to ignore the shouts behind him. You sure about old Donut, sir? said Colon, catching him up. Well, do you trust him? said Vimes. Donut? Of course not. Right, he's untrustworthy and so we don't trust him, so that's all right. But I've seen him revive a horse when everyone else said it was fit only for the knackers. Horse doctors have to get results, Fred. And that was true enough. When a human doctor, after much bleeding and cupping, finds that a patient has died out of sheer desperation, he can always say, Dear me, will of the gods, that'll be thirty dollars, please, and walk away a free man. This is because human beings are not technically worth anything. A good racehorse, on the other hand, may be worth $20,000. A doctor who lets one hurry off too soon to that great big paddock in the sky may well expect to hear, out of some dark alley, a voice saying something on the lines of Mr. Chrysoprace is very upset, and find the brief remainder of his life full of incident. No one seems to know where Captain Carrot and Angua are, said Colon. It's their day off, and Nobby's nowhere to be found. Well, that's something to be thankful for. Bingly, bingly, bong, beep, said a voice from Vimes's pocket. He lifted out the little organiser and raised the flap. Yes. Ah, uh, twelve noon, said the imp. Lunch with Lady Sybil. It stared at their faces. Ah, uh, uh, that's all right, isn't it? It said. Cheery Little Bottom wiped his brow. Ah, oh, Commander Vimes is right. It could be arsenic, he said. It looks like arsenic poisoning to me. Look at his colour. <laughs> Nasty stuff, said Donut Jimmy. Has he been eating his bedding? All the sheets seem to be here, so I suppose the answer is no. How's he pissing? Uh, the usual way, I assume. Donut sucked at his teeth. He had amazing teeth. It was the second thing everyone noticed about him. They were the colour of the inside of an unwashed teapot. Walk him round a bit on the loose rein, he said. The patrician opened his eyes. You are a doctor, aren't you? he said. Donut Jimmy gave him an uncertain look. He was not used to patients who could talk. But, well, yeah, I've had a lot of patients, he said. Indeed, I have very little, said the patrician. He tried to lift himself off the bed and slumped back. I'll, I'll mix up a draught, said Donut Jimmy, backing away. You're to hold his nose and pull it down his throat twice a day, right? And, oh, and, and no oats. He hurried out, leaving Cheery alone with the patrician. Corporal Littlebottom looked around the room. Vimes hadn't given him much instruction. He'd said, I'm sure it won't be the food tasters. For all they know, they might be asked to eat the whole plateful. Still, we'll get detritus to talk to them. You find out the how right, and then leave the who to me. If you didn't eat or drink a poison, what else was left? Probably you could put it on a pad and make someone breathe it. 
or dribble some in their ear while they slept. Or they could touch it, maybe a small dart, or an insect bite. The patrician stirred and looked at Cheery through watery red eyes. Tell me, young man, are you a policeman? Uh, just started, sir. You appear to be of the dwarf persuasion. Cheery didn't bother to answer. There was no use denying it. Somehow people could tell if you were a dwarf just by looking at you. Arsenic is a very popular poison, said the patrician. Hundreds of uses around the home. Crushed diamonds used to be in vogue for hundreds of years, despite the fact they never worked. Giant spiders, too, for some reason. Mercury is for those with patience. Aquafortis for those without. Cantharides has its followers. Much can be done with the secretions of various animals. The bodily fluids of the caterpillar of the quantum weather butterfly will render a man quite, quite helpless. But we return to arsenic like an old, old friend. There was a drowsiness in the patrician's voice. Is that not so, young veterinary? Yes, indeed, sir. Correct. But where then shall we put it, seeing that all will look for it? In the last place they will look, sir. Wrong. Foolish. We put it where no one will look at all. The voice faded to a murmur. The bed linen, Cheery thought, even clothes, into the skin, slowly. Cheery hammered on the door. A guard opened it. Get another bed. What? Another bed from anywhere and fresh bed linen. He looked down. There wasn't much of a carpet on the floor, even so in a bedroom where people might walk with bare feet. And take away this rug and bring another one. What else? Detritus came in, nodded at Cheery and looked carefully around the room. Finally, he picked up a battered chair. This'll have to do, he said. If he want, he can break the back off it. What? said Cheery. Old Donut said for to get a stool sample, said Detritus, going out again. Cheery opened his mouth to stop the troll and then shrugged. Anyway, the less furniture in here, the better. And that seemed about it, short of stripping the wallpaper off the wall. Sam Vimes stared out of the window. Veterinari hadn't bothered much in the way of bodyguards. He had used, that is, he still did use, food tasters. But that was common enough. Mind you, Veterinari had added his own special twist. The tasters were well paid and treated, and they were all sons of the chief cook but his main protection was that he was just that bit more useful alive than dead, from everyone's point of view. The big, powerful guilds didn't like him, but they liked him in power a lot more than they liked the idea of someone from a rival guild in the Oblong office. Besides, Lord Vetinari represented stability. It was a cold and clinical kind of stability, but part of his genius was the discovery that stability was what people wanted more than anything else. He'd said to Vimes once, in this very room, standing at this very window... They think they want good government and justice for all, Vimes, yet what is it they really crave deep in their hearts? Only that things go on as normal and tomorrow is pretty much like today. Now Vimes turned round. What's my next move, Fred? Dunno, sir. Vimes sat down in the patrician's chair. Can you remember the last patrician? Old Lord Snapcase? And the one before him, Lord Winder, oh, yeah, nasty pieces of work they were. At least this one didn't giggle or wear a dress. The past tense, thought Vimes, it creeps in already. 
not long past, but already very tense. It's gone very quiet downstairs, Fred, he said. Plotting don't make a lot of noise, sir, generally. Vetinari's not dead, Fred. Yes, sir, but he's not exactly in charge, is he? Vimes shrugged. No one's in charge, I suppose. Could be, sir. There again, you never know your luck. Colin was standing stiffly to attention, with his eyes firmly fixed on the middle distance and his voice pitched carefully to avoid any hint of emotion in the words. Vimes recognised the stance. He used it himself when he had to. What do you mean, Fred? he said. Not a thing, sir. Figure of speech, sir. Vimes sat back. This morning, he thought, I knew what the day held. I was going to see about that damn coat of arms. Then there was my usual meeting with Vetinari. I was going to read some reports after lunch. Maybe go and see how they're getting on with the new watch house in Chitling Street and have an early night. Now Fred's suggesting... What? Listen, Fred, if there is to be a new ruler, it won't be me. Who'll it be, sir? Colon's voice still held that slow, deliberate tone. How should I know? It could be... The gap opened ahead of him, and he could feel his thoughts being sucked into it. You're talking about Captain Carrot, aren't you, Fred? Could be, sir. I mean, none of the guilds would let some other guild bloke be ruler now, and everyone likes Captain Carrot, and, well, rumours got about that he's the heir to the throne, sir. There's no proof of that, Sergeant. Not for me to say, sir, dunno about that, dunno what is proof, said Colin, with just a hint of defiance. But he's got that sword of his, and the birthmark shaped like a crown, and, well, everybody knows he's king. It's his charisma. Charisma, thought Vimes. Oh, yes, Carrot has charisma. He makes something happen in people's heads. He can talk a charging leopard into giving up and handing over its teeth and doing good work in the community, and that would really upset the old ladies. Vimes distrusted charisma. No more kings, Fred. Right you are, sir. By the way, Nobby's turned up. Oh, the day gets worse and worse, Fred. You said you talked to him about all these funerals, sir? The job goes on, I suppose. All right, go and tell him to come up here. Vimes was left to himself. No more kings. Vimes had difficulty in articulating why this should be so, why the concept revolted in his very bones. After all, a good many of the patricians had been as bad as any king, but they were sort of bad on equal terms. What set Vimes's teeth on edge was the idea that kings were a different kind of human being, a higher life form, somehow magical. But huh, there was some magic at that. Ankh-Morpork still seemed to be littered with royal this and royal that, little old men who got paid a few pence a week to do a few meaningless chores, like the master of the king's keys, or the keeper of the crown jewels, even though there were no keys and certainly no jewels. Royalty was like dandelions. No matter how many heads you chopped off, the roots were still there underground waiting to spring up again. It seemed to be a chronic disease. It was as if even the most intelligent person had this little blank spot in their heads where someone had written, Kings! What a good idea! Whoever had created humanity had left in a major design flaw. It was its tendency to bend at the knees. There was a knock at the door. It should not be possible for a knock to sound surreptitious, yet this knock achieved it. It had harmonics. 
They told the hindbrain, the person knocking will, if no one eventually answers, open the door anyway, and sidle in, whereupon he will certainly nick any smokes that are lying around, read any correspondence that catches his eye, open a few drawers, take a nip out of such bottles of alcohol as are discovered, but stop short of a major crime, because he is not criminal in the sense of making a moral decision, but in the sense that a weasel is evil. It is built into his very shape. It was a knock with a lot to say for itself. "'Come in, Nobby,' said Vimes wearily. Corporal Nobbs sidled in. It was another special trait of his that he could sidle forwards as well as sideways. He saluted awkwardly. There was something absolutely changeless about Corporal Nobbs, Vimes told himself. Even Fred Colon had adapted to the changing nature of the City Watch, but nothing altered Corporal Nobbs in any way. It wouldn't matter what you did to him, there was always something fundamentally... Nobby, about Corporal Nobbs. Nobby? Yes, sir? Uh, take a seat, Nobby. Corporal Nobbs looked suspicious. This was not how a dressing down was supposed to begin. Uh, Fred said you wanted to see me, Mr Vimes, uh, on account of timekeeping. Did I? Did I? Oh, yes. Nobby, how many grandmother's funerals have you really been to? Uh, three, said Nobby uncomfortably. Three. It turned out Nanny Nobbs weren't quite dead the first time. So why have you taken all this time off? Uh, don't like to say, sir. Why not? You're going to go spare, sir. Spare? You know, sir. Throw a wobbler. I might, Nobby, Vimes sighed, but it'll be nothing to what'll get heaved if you don't tell me. Thing is, it's the, uh, the tricenter, the, uh, Trikery, um, this 300-year celebration thing next year, Mr Vimes. Yes, Nobby licked his lips. I didn't like to ask for time off special. Fred said you were a bit sensitive about it all. But you know I'm in the peeled nuts, sir. Vimes nodded. Those clowns who dress up and pretend to fight old battles with blunt swords, he said. The Ankh-Morpork Historical Recreation Society, sir said Nobby, a shade reproachfully. That's what I said. Well, we're going to recreate the Battle of Ankh-Morpork for the celebrations, see? And that means extra practice. It all begins to make sense, said Vimes, nodding wearily. You've been marching up and down with your tin pike, eh? In my time. Uh, not exactly, Mr Vimes. Uh, I've, I've been riding up and down on my white horse, to tell the truth. Ah, oh, playing at being general, eh? Eh, bit more than a general, sir. Go on. Nobby's Adam's apple bobbed nervously. Eh, I'm going to be King Lorenzo, sir. Uh, you know, the last king, the one you're, um, uh, the one you The air froze. You are going to be, Vimes began, unpeeling each word like a sullen grape of wrath. I said you'd go spare, said Nobby. Fred Colon said you'd go spare too. Why are you... We drew lots, sir. And you lost, Nobby squirmed. Eh, not exactly lost, sir. Not precisely lost. Eh, more sort of uh, won, sir. Everyone wanted to play him. I mean, you get a horse and a good costume and everything, sir. And he was a king. Oh, when all said and done, sir. The man was a vicious monster. Well, it was all a long time ago, sir. 
said Nobby anxiously. Vimes calmed down a little. And who drew the straw to place, tone-faced Vimes? And, uh, and, uh, Nobby! Nobby hung his head. No one, sir. No one wanted to play him, sir. The little corporal swallowed and then plunged onwards with the air of a man determined to get it all over with. So we're, um, we're making a man out of straw, sir, so he'll burn nicely when we throw him on the bonfire in the evening. There's going to be fireworks, sir, he added with dreadful certainty. Viams's face shut down. Nobby preferred it when people shouted. He had been shouted at for most of his life. He could handle shouting. No one wanted to be stone-face Vimes, Vimes said coldly. On account of him being on the losing side, sir. Losing? Vimes's iron heads won. He ruled the city for six months. Nobby squirmed again. Yeah, but... Everyone in the society says he didn't ought to have, sir. They said it was just a fluke, sir. After all, he was outnumbered ten to one, and he had warts, sir. And he was a bit of a bastard, sir, when all said and done. He did chop off a king's head, sir. You've got to be a bit of a nasty type to do that, sir. Saving your presence, Mr Vimes. Vimes shook his head. What did it matter anyway? But it did matter somewhere. It had all been a long time ago. It didn't matter what a bunch of deranged romantics thought. Facts were facts. All right, I understand, he said. It's almost funny, really. Because there's something else I've got to tell you, Nobby. Yes, sir, said Nobby, looking relieved. Do you remember your father? Nobby looked about to panic again. What kind of a question is that to suddenly ask anybody, sir? Purely a social inquiry. Old Sconner, sir? <laughs> Not much, sir. Never used to see him much, except when the military police used to come for to drag him out of the attic. <laughs> Do you know much about your uh, antecedents? That is a lie, sir. I haven't got no antecedents, sir, no matter what you might have been told. Oh, good. Uh, you don't actually know what antecedents means, do you, Nobby? Nobby shifted uneasily. He didn't like being questioned by policemen, especially since he was one. Um, not in so many words, sir. You never got told anything about your forebears? Another worried expression crossed Nobby's face, so Vimes quickly added, Your ancestors? Only old Sconner, sir. Sir, if all this is working up to asking about them sacks of vegetables which went missing from the shop in Treacle Mine Road, I was not anywhere near that Vimes waved a hand vaguely. He didn't leave you anything or anything? Couple of scars, sir, and this trick elbow of mine. It aches sometimes when the weather changes. I always remembers old Sconner when the wind blows from the hub. Ah, right. And this, of course, Nobby fished around behind his rusting breastplate. And that was a marvel, too. Even Sergeant Colan's armour could shine, if not actually gleam. But any metal anywhere near Nobby's skin corroded very quickly. The corporal pulled out a leather thong that hung around his neck. There was a gold ring on it. Despite the fact that gold cannot corrode, it had nevertheless developed a patina. He left it to me when he was on his deathbed, said Nobby. Well, when I say left it, uh, did he say anything? Well, yeah, he did say 
Give it back, you little bugger, sir. See, he had it on a string round his neck, sir, just like me. But it's not like a proper ring, sir. I'd have flogged it, but it's all I've got to remember him by, except when the wind blows from the hub. Vimes took the ring and rubbed it with a finger. It was a seal ring with a coat of arms on it. Age and wear and the immediate presence of the body of Corporal Nobbs had made it quite unreadable. You are armigerous, Nobby. Nobby nodded. But I got a special shampoo for it, sir. Vimes sighed. He was an honest man. He'd always felt that was one of the biggest defects in his personality. When you've got a moment, nip along to the College of Heralds in Molly Mog Street, will you? Take this ring with you and say I sent you. Eh, it's all right, Nobby, said Vimes. You won't get into trouble. Not as such. If you say so, sir. And you don't have to bother with the sir, Nobby. Yes, sir. 